Good morning, and thanks for tuning in to Leaders Playbook, where you'll discover what emotional intelligence is all about and how to raise yours to be a top performer in business. Now, here's your host, Dr. Rell. Welcome to Leaders Playbook, Tools for Top Performance. Have you ever wondered what is the difference between a good and great leader? How do you develop your people to be the next level leaders in your organization? What are the triggers that are holding you back and how do you manage them? And how do you maximize your power and influence so you and your team perform better? These are the topics that we'll be covering over the next 13 weeks in this show, The Leader's Playbook. The goal is to give you actionable tools and tips to help you be in the top 10%. Hi, my name is Dr. Relly Nadler, and I'll be your host on this exciting journey. We have some of the top names in leadership development who will be our guests over these weeks. In my background, I'm a licensed psychologist. I'm a master-level executive coach, an author, and a corporate trainer. I have a book, The Leader's Playbook, that we'll be basing a lot of this uh, show and the topics from. And I'm excited to be here and share with you the cutting-edge tools and templates to be a star performer. So what's a star performer? That's somebody who performs in the top 10%. I have used a lot of these plays and tools that we'll be talking about with thousands of leaders over the last 30 years with organizations such as Anheuser-Busch, Baxter Health, DreamWorks Animation, MCI, and Paramount Pictures. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, the show and the makeup. The show is going to be based on the research about emotional and social intelligence. And there is a 30-year database from the Hay Group consulting firm and other groups um, that show what's the difference between a star and a performer who is either average or good. So the goal in this show is to make it salient. What do stars do differently? And then really break it down into a paint-by-numbers, kind of follow-the-bouncing-ball type of methodology so you can easily implement these actions, share them with your team uh, and colleagues at work. So these actions, I like to call them micro-initiatives. Some may take a few minutes. Others may take a half hour or a few, few hours. Some you can do on your own. Some you can do with your team. These micro-initiatives can create a macro-impact. And the clients that I work with, the executives I work with, they like these micro-initiatives not because they're initiatives, but because they're micro. They're short. Time is always of the essence. And at the end of every show, what we'll do, um, you'll be able to download one of the specific tools that will help you raise your emotional intelligence. And the website is www.leadersplaybook.com. And if you go there, there'll be a tool that'll be associated with each uh, show. So today's show we're starting off is Emotional Intelligence, Good to Great Leadership. This will be an overview of what emotional intelligence is. And I'm really excited that shortly we'll have our guest, who is Dr. Richard Boyatzis. He is one of the founding leaders and really a world expert in emotional intelligence. He's a co-author with Daniel Goleman and Annie McKee of Primal Leadership, Realizing the Power of Emotional Intelligence. And then more recently, again with Andy McKee, he wrote Resonant Leadership. He'll be sharing some of the history of emotional intelligence or the EI movement, 
some specific tools that he uses at the uh, Weatherhood School of Management, which is at Case Western University, where he's a professor. So this show, like all the other shows, has four segments to it. And uh, the first segment, we're going to look at research, some case examples that of, of people who are either high or maybe low in emotional intelligence, some of the research that supports it. And then we'll have a segment where I'm calling the star secret, where I'll interview somebody and some of the experts in the field about their ideas, their concepts, their strategies on how to be great. The third component is going to be the coach's corner. And that's where I'll share tools that I've developed or, or used with executives uh, to help them in their leadership development. And then the last piece will be a actual tool that you can use and that you can download. Um, and that, again, is going to be at uh, www.leadersplaybook.com. So a little bit about my background before we bring on uh, Richard. I'm a licensed psychologist, and my firm, True North Leadership, we do leadership development, executive coaching, um, team training for a variety of organizations. And what's exciting about this is every organization is different, and um, how to tailor some of these uh, tools to fit for them, hopefully like you'll do and bring back to your organization. So this is all about emotional intelligence, and let's talk about a definition. What is emotional intelligence? Well, in simple terms, it's understanding and managing yourself and then understanding and managing others. Today, in uh, emotional intelligence and the, the sister field, social intelligence, brings together some of the best research from neuropsychology, psychology, sociology, and management. And one of the key findings that I found uh, fascinating is that emotions are contagious and that leaders set the emotional thermostat for their team. So just like you have a thermostat in your house that is set for whether to keep it at a certain temperature, well, the leader sets the emotional thermostat for their team. If they are calm and confident, so is their team. If they are anxious, agitated, worried, so is their team. One of the things that I found um, that I think is a gap and that I think Richard Boyatis will be able to speak to also is how do you raise emotional intelligence? I think there's a lot written. There's a lot of good research about why it's important. But I think the key question that most people ask me, and I'm, I'm sure they ask Dr. Boyatis, how do you raise it? What do you do differently? And so that's really going to be the focus of this show, is giving you specific hands-on tools each week around a different topic that you can use for yourself, you can use for your team, you can use to develop your next leaders. So let me go through a couple reasons why is, why is emotional intelligence important. If we looked at a few things, how smart you are, which is your IQ, and your technical expertise, what uh, specific expertise do you bring to your job, and this third component of emotional intelligence, when we look at those three, what the research is showing is the key factor that will allow you to be successful is emotional intelligence. Uh, in studies anywhere from you know, 67% up to 85 or 90%, the further you move up in the organization. 
sometimes people say, well, why is, is IQ not as important? It is important, certainly an uh, important factor for any leader to have. But what happens is everybody, when they're a manager level, probably has about a high average IQ, 115 or above. IQ is 100 plus or minus 15 points. So um, when you get all managers together, it becomes almost a, a wash. They're all about the same. Even though I've been in meetings, I'm sure you've been in meetings, where someone who has two extra IQ points is going to make it a point to show everybody else that they have these two extra IQ points. But the further you move up in an organization, the less you do in the technical expertise, IQ becomes um, somewhat of an equalizer. So the differentiator, or sometimes it's called the tipping point, is this concept of emotional intelligence, understanding yourself, managing yourself, understanding others, managing others. Uh, in one of the big research studies of about 20,000 leaders, this is from uh, Zenger and Folkman, who wrote a book, Extraordinary Leaders, they found that, that leaders make a huge difference when compared to the merely good leaders. Leaders in the top 10% produce twice as much revenue to the organization as managers in the 11th through the 89th percentiles. They have a great leaders have a, a positive impact on profitability, turnover, employee commitment, customer satisfaction. So you would think some of these skills would be natural for leaders, um, but it's really not because they've been brought into the organization typically around their technical expertise, and if they do really well, one of the organizations uh, that I deal with um, makes animated movies, and so you have an incredible animator who is very good at holding themselves accountable. And what happens is they move up the corporate ladder. They now are in charge of other people. So now so they have to motivate others. They have to hold them to their deliverables. Um, all things that typically they don't have training in. They have a lot of training in their specialty. And in another study of about 1,400 leaders, when they asked them, what are the top things leaders fail to do? Well, one of the things that came up, 82% said providing appropriate feedback, both redirection and praise. 81% said listening and involving others in the process. And 76% saying knowing the right leadership style to use and how to tailor that to their people. Uh, another reason why emotional intelligence is important, a uh, consulting group, the right management consulting group, found that 77% of companies say they do not have enough successors to their current senior managers. With the baby boomers retiring, and the baby boomers have been documented to have higher emotional intelligence than some of the Generation X and Generation Y, with, with them retiring, it's going to be uh, imperative for this next level um, leaders to improve their emotional intelligence. One, there's less of the Generation X leaders, and there's little less emotional intelligence. So there is going to be a big push for our leaders today um, to find successors and to really help them develop their emotional intelligence. I'm excited uh, that we're going to have uh, Dr. Boyatzis here. Uh, he has been an expert in the field for a long time and has written uh, numerous books that I mentioned, uh, Resident Leadership, 
Um, also, uh, the competent manager. He has uh, been a, a president of the Hay Group, a consulting firm, uh, and it really has been a founder in this field for a long time. So I'm really excited uh, to you know hear his expertise around emotional intelligence, a little bit around the history, and uh, some of these specific questions that I want to ask him about. How can the listeners raise their emotional intelligence, and what are some of the things that they can do to be a star being in the top 10%? So we will have uh, Dr. Boyatzis on, and I'm very uh, interested to go through some of the questions and find out um, just what's most important, what some of his current research is these days, and uh, get some of the learning from him that, that we can use in our focus on being the best leaders we can be. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. Most leaders underestimate their influence and power over others and thus underperform. Dr. Relly Nadler and Leaders Playbook help leaders point the way by providing the strategic place to get to the top in a simple paint-by-the-numbers process. Seasoned and emerging leaders will have answers to these questions. What are the steps to move up and become a star in your organization? How do you develop your people to be the next level leaders in the organization? What are your triggers that are holding you back and how do you manage them? How do you maximize your power and influence so you and your team perform better? What do you do to ensure your communication is received accurately? How do you delegate effectively? How do you develop strong relationships across the organization? Emotional intelligence training, coaching, books, and tools by Dr. Nadler are available at his website www.truenorthleadership.com or 805-683-1066. Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Why is Pepsi cooler than Coke? Why are iPods so popular? How can you launch a successful brand? Want to know? Learn about the fascinating and intriguing world of graphic design and branding on Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time, Debbie Millman will provide you with a provocative look into the stimulating world of design as it intersects with contemporary culture. Hear what the experts have to say about creating, maintaining, and launching a brand in today's challenging marketplace. Join us every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. You're listening to Leaders Playbook, tools for top performance. If you have a question for Dr. Nadler, feel free to email him at rnadler at truenorthleadership.com. Now, back to Dr. Rell. 
So I'm happy to have uh, Dr. Richard Boyatis here. And what I was just asking him during the break was to give us a little history about uh, emotional intelligence, where it started, um, way back when, you know, his affiliation with Daniel Goleman, with the Hay Group, David McClellan, you know, which I think are really the roots uh, of emotional intelligence. So, Richard, Thanks, Riley. Uh, thank you for having me on the program. The, the research from um, our perspective, those of us who do the, the stuff that's a little more behavioral on this, I mean, I won't go back to the Plato and Sun and before Sun Tzu and all that in 2000 okay. BC. But uh, in terms of the current research, I did the first competency model, as it's called that, in 1970 for Navy supervisory chaplains. Uh, at the time, uh, I was working for uh, this small research consulting group that David McClellan had founded and one of his doctoral students and teaching with him. And, and Dan and I, by the way, were uh, graduate students together at Harvard. Mm. Uh, we were both involved in uh, McClellan's work as well as uh, party together. And at the time, um, when I started doing uh, the, the competency studies, the first ones, it started with uh, building off of an idea that McClelland and a few others had in uh, their book, Talent and Society, in 1958, in proposing that in people's search for what talent is, one had to look for a broader spectrum than just um, cognitive ability or G. Mm-hmm. And over the years, we, um, in the late 60s, uh, we'd been doing a lot of research on motives and, and style and all that, so it made sense to go after these other more elusive characteristics, which at the time we said, let's call competencies because they are, as you know, as a psychologist, uh, traits, abilities, uh, but they also have behavioral manifestations. Now, what separates them from skills? Well, they're not that simplistic. Mm-hmm. Um, they have an unconscious intent embedded in them, and that's what helps to organize them. Hmm. Well, um, the group that I was working with, um, McBurr, as I uh, finished my doctorate in 72, 73, and then started working full-time and doing this research, uh, this, this competency framework of looking at the outstanding performers in a job, the average and poor performers, and going in and testing them, uh, started to take on, um, catch on. And by the early 70s, the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps said, uh, let's go after this in a big way. And then other companies that were early adopters picked it up, uh, General Electric, digital equipment, uh, and many others. And by the uh, middle to late 70s, we were doing um, a few dozen of these competency studies a year for different organizations. And basically it was uh, you pick a job, a role, whether it's CEO or sales manager or um, systems programmer, you figure out what the performance measures indicators are, which are never performance appraisal because that's uh, mm-hmm. somewhat of a suspect issue yeah. in the research. And then once you get the performance measures, you sort out a distribution of the folks. And you, in the early days, we went to extreme case design, so we picked the uh, outstanding performers and the average performers um, randomly picked, and then we went in and tested them. By 72 and 75, and actually uh, Lyle Spencer reminds me that we invented the technique on my dining room table in my apartment, Uh Um, we started the interviewing, the behavioral event interview, which was really a genesis of the questions in the TAT, the thematic perception test, which Dave McClellan is famous for and all of us were using in our research, and work from biohistory that 
Chuck Daly, who was on our staff at the time, a former professor from Dartmouth, was doing a lot with. And we kind of merged the two and and took um, Flanagan's original critical incident technique and turned it into an interview protocol that would inductively find out what these people did, thought, and felt. Uh-huh. And it worked fabulously. I mean, we were getting much higher validation results than in a typical personality testing and all that. And by the amalgamation, by the time 79 came around, we started to have so many of these studies that we were seeing patterns in uh, in these findings. So my 1982 book, The Competent Manager, which, as I understand it, is the first uh, empirical study to ever be published um, linking competencies or even skills to job performance across management in different samples. You know, you had the AT&T studies by Doug Bray. That was within one company. Okay. Then you had, you know, studies that were published in various journals, and they usually looked at one characteristic. But nobody looked at the composite set of all of these different things before that. Since my book came out in 82, there have been a number of others. Some are small sample ones, like Cotter's The General Manager's, uh, others are larger sample ones like Luthen's uh, The Real Managers in 88. Others are more uh, meta-analytic that didn't go back to the raw data mm-hmm. like Spencer and Spencer 93 or uh, Dan Goldman's working with emotional intelligence in 98. Those are meta-analytic. They sat and looked at the results from other studies. Right. In 82, I went back to the raw data and reanalyzed it and then presented it. So what we had coming out of that is a very, very strong set of findings that said even though there are organization to organization and industry to industry and sector to sector in the not-for-profit, for-profit, public sector, etc., differences, you start to see a pattern emerging mm-hmm. that in any time you look at a particular job, whether it's CEO or, like I said, architecture system programmer, you find about 15 to 18 to 20 characteristics that statistically differentiate the outstanding from the average performers. In most of those managerial, executive, leadership, and professional jobs, there were two cognitive abilities that always came out, systems thinking and pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. The others had to do with how people managed themselves and other people. There was always a cluster around achievement orientation, adaptability, uh, self-confidence, uh, emotional self-control which is what we now call emotional intelligence. And then there was always a cluster around empathy or interpersonal sensitivity, team building, developing others, um, influence, communications. uh, That is a cluster around how you build relationships. So when Dan was uh, writing for the New York Times, Dan Goldman, um, well, when he... And when he first finished his degree, we still worked together, and he worked on some projects um, with me and and with David at McBurr. But then when he was writing for Psychology Day and later um, New York Times, he used to call us regularly and say, okay, what are you guys finding lately? Hmm. And, you know, we'd tell him the results from those studies, which we had permission to release publicly. And um, and then for the ones that we didn't have permission from the separate clients, when we would do these um, composite analyses, we could talk about it. So as we continued to do basic research and applied research and and start to write it up and publish it, you know, we used to keep Dan posted and he would start to write about it. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting because I know he kind of, it seemed like he kind of stumbled on this concept, but it sounds like you had some major influence. Like, well, how did the, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you asked him, he would say most of the, not the physiological side of it, right. but on the psychological and behavioral side of it, most of the work that he used as his foundational work was the stuff we were doing at McBurr and that I was doing. So, and so that was really the, the root of the 1995 book, Emotional Intelligence. Well, and there, you know, look, one of the things that Dan has always been good at is he takes very, very um, intricate stuff from very right. disparate fields and synthesizes it in a way which is, you know, really makes a lot of sense. And then, you know, on top of this theoretical contribution, he makes a magnificent uh, emotional contribution by making it accessible because he's such a good writer and communicator. Um, and one of the things he was doing during the late 80s was he was synthesizing what he was reading. Now, he did his doctoral dissertation on, you know, brain waves of people who are meditating versus mm-hmm. others. You know, so he, he was always fascinated by the psychophysiological, even with the spiritual dimension added into it. And, and among other things, I mean, when people asked me in the late 90s, you know, like, what's the story with emotional intelligence? Is it old wine and new bottles? I'd say in part it is. Yeah. You know, in part it's a repackaging, relabeling of stuff we've been doing for 35 years, uh-huh. now 37 years. Um, but in part, it's also a synthesis with um, moving right down into the neurological and endocrine aspects of how a person functions. Now, a lot of that, the synthesis was first begun by Dan's ability to get to know these people and um, help them see what, you know, they didn't even know. I mean, I had Joseph Ledoux, who did the landmark study in 86, showing the, uh, took eight milliseconds for a neural uh, circuit to get from the thalamus to the amygdala and 40 seconds to get to the neocortex, which meant that we think, I mean, we feel before we think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this was a landmark study. Well, I was at a session, a small session that we have of a research group, the Consortium for Research on Emotional Intelligence in Organizations, and, and, and we had Joe come in and present, and he said, you know, I didn't know till Dan started writing about it that that's what I'd found. You know, I mean, yeah, he yeah. said, I was studying, you know, kind of transmission issues and cellular relationships and this and that. Right, right. So, so one of the things that Dan did, and then he, yeah, very appropriately credited Jack Mayer and Peter Salovey, who first used the term emotional intelligence in print, and, right. and Dan credited them with that um, in his 95 book. But what happened when... Um, the 95 book, which focused on a lot of this stuff uh, at one level, hit so well, and he said, okay, you know, I want to do another one. You know, he called me and said, look, this stuff is happening very fast. Let's do something about it. <laughs> you know, you've got the tests and you've got the training programs. And by then, I already had enough longitudinal data to know that we actually know how to develop this stuff in a sustainable way for adults. So we took one of the existing tests that I had and kind of retooled it a bit and that became what you know as the ECI, now oh, okay. the ESCI. Right, right. Um, now, I mean, you know, what McClellan taught me when I was a graduate student is that if you really want a good test, you have to put a lot of effort into it, and you have to keep putting a lot of effort into it. And as you know, I mean, the difference between Cosmo quizzes right. versus appropriate instruments is reliability and validity and divergent validity and all that kind of stuff. So, um so basically then we started doing a lot of research and now we have hundreds of studies that have established the validity and you know every two years I do a major revision on the test to increase the precision of it. Um, well, that's and we have that and then we started working because I'd already had the um, the courses here done with 25 to 65 year olds showing the longitudinal results. We had a pretty strong you know, database from here at Weatherhead at Case uh, Western Reserve University to show that you really could do this stuff. So, 
that's kind of how it all evolved. Well, that's great, and I've been I've really enjoyed using the uh, the emotional competence inventory, and now great. the emotional social competence inventory. Yep. So I've really appreciated, you know, the the rigor that that goes uh, on in this, and what you've been able to uh, to come up with. So what I want to do uh, is also check in with you about because the key question I know you get, I get all the time. So what do you do? What are some of the key practices? To, to raise emotional intelligence. You know, what are some of the things that you found at Case Western, and how many years have you, have you been there? 20. 20 years, and then working with MBA students really as your uh, laboratory of seeing what works the next day. Well, it's, MBAs, they're around 30. EMBAs, around 40. Executive doctorate students that are in their 50s, and mm-hmm. professional fellows that are in their 50s. So it's, it's a full spectrum from 25 to 65. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, so I do want to do want to uh, get into that, you know, right after we come okay. back from back from the break. It's about kind of finding kind of the, the the actual tools. That's really the focus of the show. So, what what seems to work and, and what doesn't seem to work? Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio, Voice America Business at VoiceAmerica.com. Most leaders underestimate their influence and power over others and thus underperform. Dr. Relly Nadler and Leaders Playbook help leaders point the way by providing the strategic place to get to the top in a simple paint-by-the-numbers process. Seasoned and emerging leaders will have answers to these questions. What are the steps to move up and become a star in your organization? How do you develop your people to be the next level leaders in the organization? What are your triggers that are holding you back and how do you manage them? How do you maximize your power and influence so you and your team perform better? What do you do to ensure your communication is received accurately? How do you delegate effectively? How do you develop strong relationships across the organization? Emotional intelligence training, coaching, books, and tools by Dr. Nadler are available at his website www.truenorthleadership.com or 805-683-1066. Why is Pepsi cooler than Coke? Why are iPods so popular? In 2005, how can you launch a successful brand? Want to know? Learn about the fascinating and intriguing world of graphic design and branding on Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time, Debbie Millman will provide you with a provocative look into the stimulating world of design as it intersects with contemporary culture. Hear what the experts have to say about creating, maintaining, and launching a brand in today's challenging marketplace. Join us every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time for The Growth Strategist with Aldana Ambler. On the show, Aldana and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart, grow profit, and grow your business with Aldana Ambler and The Growth Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on The Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. Listen wherever you are. 24-hour business and financial news. Solid, focused, and informed. The leader in business talk. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Leader's Playbook, tools for top performance. If you have a question for Dr. Nadler, feel free to email him at rnadler at truenorthleadership.com. Now, back to Dr. Rell. 
Well, thank you. We're listening to Leaders Playbook, Tools for Top Performance. We're talking with our guest, Dr. Richard Boyasis from um, Case Western Reserve University. And we're now going to go into um, what are some of the key steps and tools. Emotional intelligence is well-documented, great research. Um, but so what are the specific uh, tools that seem to be helpful that you found in your work to help someone raise their emotional intelligence? Sure. Well, uh, one of the issues, Riley, as you know, is um, you can't really force somebody else to change. So the question is really comes down to a motivational issue. Mm-hmm. Does the person want to change? What my research has been has shown is that um, over because I, I was doing this longitudinal research on change in the early in the late '60s at MIT, and then with alcoholics and drug addicts in the '70s, and then shifted back to executives and managers in the '80s. Um, and what we know about adults is that if they change uh, in a sustainable way, in a desired sustainable way, you, know, you really need complexity theory notion to appreciate the significance of it because the change is almost always nonlinear and discontinuous. Mm-hmm. When you look at those nonlinearities and the discontinuities, there are always five there are always five discoveries or epiphanies that seem to be present. And if they're not, you tend to see the, sta- the changes not be sustainable. Okay. One is, and the first really is the discovery and articulation of an ideal self, a personal vision. It turns out that neurologically, people under stress can't learn. Their minds are closed down, right. neurogenesis is stopped, and the hormones feed on that for hours. And so when people are under stress or given negative feedback or told they have to shape up or given constructive criticism, it all induces stress. Mm-hmm. And in fact, even though it is often well-intended, it leads to the exact opposite of what that quote-unquote helper, coach, teacher, manager wants. People don't change. Right. But if you ask people about their dreams, what they hope for, what they fantasize, what they, what they would love life to be like, what they would love their work to be like, you know, all these things that sound really gushy, but it turns out that when people spend time dreaming about what might be, a different neurological circuit is engaged, different parts of the brain are engaged, and different hormones are secreted into the body. And these are the ones that actually open up your mind to higher cognitive functioning. Uh, I call this the positive versus the negative emotional attractor inside of each of ourselves. So what happens is working on the ideal self moves you into the positive emotional attractor. You work on the real self, how you're acting, it's negative emotional attractor most of the time because when people do that, they mostly are focusing on weaknesses. What we've found over these 25 years of longitudinal studies, and this goes back even to the, the, the work I did with the alcoholics and drug addicts in the 70s, is that you need to do both. You have to move back and forth between both of these attractors, the positive and negative, to have sustainable change. But if you start in the negative emotional attractor, you never get there. Hmm. Okay. You negatively frame the goal, and you don't get there. That's why assessment centers and even 360, here are two of the most powerful devices for helping people develop, and yet most of the time when they're used, it's a waste of time and money because they do the assessment, give people the data, and say, okay, let's work on your weaknesses. That's a guaranteed recipe for uh, a waste of time. Mm-hmm. But if people start in the positive emotional attractor and they get themselves into this neural endocrine state where they're cognitively at their best 
they're open to new ideas. They're feeling, after a while, they start to feel hopeful and lifted. Mm-hmm. Then the person is ready to take some negative feedback and push themselves and, and, and go into a negative uh, state, stress state, and then quickly back. Now, the ratio of these two things is absolutely fascinating because uh, a group of colleagues at Michigan and the Catholic University in, in Sao Paulo, Barb Fredrickson and uh, Manuel Lozada, have shown that this ratio has to be about three to one for effective teams. John Gottman, in his work on healthy, stable marriages, has shown it has to be five to one right. for a healthy, stable marriage. So, so, I, so I know that research, and you're saying now with, with teams, positive to negative should be a ratio of, of three positive to one negative. Yeah. Okay. And, and what we're talking about is not just positive words. We also mean, you know, the nonverbal gestures and all the rest of the stuff. Um, and, and right now, I mean, we don't know what that's like when you're trying to help another person one-on-one, but we have a number of dissertations. Anita Howard here is just finishing her Ph.D., and she's been studying coaching of mid-career dentists. And she's actually testing this notion of if you coach them, you know, trying to show both the physiological and psychological effects of if you coach them starting with the positive emotional attractor, starting with their sense of vision and dreams and then looking at strengths and then weaknesses versus doing the usual thing, which is look at the data, people zero in on the weaknesses and say, okay, with this misguided sense, right. if I look at my weaknesses and I work on them, I'll be able to make the most progress. Well, that actually, it doesn't happen. Right. And, and if you need any evidence of that, then look at just the, the amount of obesity in the country and um, why people are fat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, <laughs> because I, if you try to lose weight, you can't. I just know I, I gave uh, the ECI feedback to about four or five people yesterday, and just talking about their strengths and just yeah. getting them, you know, they they get excited, and, right. and you can just imagine what's going on with them physiologically. But it's right. like all of a sudden, they start moving in that way. Yeah, and as you know, and then the strength based movements is very big in HRD and OD. Um, and one of the issues there, I think, uh, thanks to Marcus Buckingham's books and others, is that the strength-based approaches is getting some traction. What I contend from my theory and the research I've done around it is that that's necessary but not sufficient, mm-hmm. that understanding your strengths is only a part of understanding this ideal self and moving you into the positive emotional attractor. You also have to tap into your core values and your dreams. Okay. And that's where... Just looking at your strengths might be a little misleading because it's so simplistic to say, well, let me find my strengths and let me go to a job that uses my strength. Right. Okay. Well, if we actually ended up doing that, what would happen is we would always be taking jobs that we've already done. Uh-huh. And while you're, if you're in your 20s or your 30s, that might seem exciting to kind of ace these jobs. Most of us that are over 40 or 38 know that you know, we go through changes. There, there are times in our lives we go through these seven-year cycles, plus or minus two, where we want something new and different. And we don't want to do what we can do well. We want to do something that's interesting or different. And and so that's where the challenge trade comes and really getting right. in touch with that. Right. that those stretch so so the, 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 to, to go back to you, sorry for such a long way. Right. It's a <laughs> professorial problem. Um, but, uh, okay. but, but the central answer to your question, how do you help people build their social and emotional intelligence? You start with their dreams. Okay. Because it is so hard to change our behavior patterns, our habits, it, it calls for so much emotional self-control and consistent vigilance that it's stressful. And if you don't have a really compelling reason to do it, if you don't really want it to happen for positive reasons, you know, you, you know, you'll like dieting. You know, so you feel righteous after three days eating a lot of rabbit food. 
right. you know, something happens on the fourth day and you say to hell with it and you have two glasses of wine and a big bowl of ice cream. And, well, those are my nemesis, <laughs> but anyway, uh, you know, but, but that's the point is that it's so difficult to sustain a change process. Now, and then can you change these things? Yes. We have clear data on over 25 different cadres of 25 to 65-year-olds showing that regardless of whether they're presidents of companies or physicians running parts of hospitals or lawyers or um, salespeople, you can significantly help people change and improve in a way that holds out. Our data goes out as long as seven years in terms of the uh, longitudinal data. And yes, it can be done, but it's not easy. You know, it's. I mean, if it was easy, everybody would be really right. smooth and competent and not need you and I. Well, so that goes back to your discontinuities. Uh, you right. mentioned two of them, and because I imagine the ideal self and the real self, and then there's got to be somehow the uh, creative tension between. Them. Yeah. So maybe. Yeah, and that's really that. where you, you. The third discovery ends up being a learning agenda or a learning plan. Now, that's one that I think is very interesting because you know those of us who have been in the field. I mean, I I did my first management training workshops. At, you know, delivered them in '67 and. So I've been around this thing a long time, and, you know, what you know is everybody does planning. You know, everybody's got their Franklin Covey planner, and this is and that's, and back in the 60s and 70s, it was the Kepner-Trago process, and we all had these ways of going about learning how to plan. Okay, so here's the dilemma. The normal way of planning is a whole lot of to-do lists with benchmarks, which are fine, but for a lot of people, that induces stress. Uh Uh-huh. So when people change in a sustainable way, it turns out that they construct their plan or their agenda around things that they look forward to trying. So the reason we call it a learning agenda is it isn't just a semantic quibble. It really is emotionally different than when it's a performance improvement plan. I mean, you say performance improvement, the first thing that comes to mind is, whoops, I did something bad. Right, right. You're on defensive. Yep. Something you want to learn, something you want to try. So the challenge is really effective coaches help people construct a learning agenda, first of all, that has very few items in it, and that's part of what I agree with what you were saying in your opening remarks. I mean, people don't make huge changes. They make changes when they're close to the tipping point, when it really makes an effect. And there are only so many things we can do in life. We're already way too busy, you know, and you have to spend so many hours a day doing your BlackBerry prayers and all these kinds of things. So is, is there a magic what, number that you shoot for in, in goals? Two to three. Two to three, okay. Yeah, actually there is. <laughs> I mean, I, it's not magic. It's just right. that I find, I, you know, I just don't think people can handle more than that because yeah. you've got other things going on in your life. Yep, exactly. Um, so the, it's not just the goals, but so you have to frame the goal in a way that's tied into this vision. So you, you know, every time you think about it, you smile. You know, I mean, one of the classic things I do with top executives is one of the goals always has to be something about spending more time with their families. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, honestly, nobody ever says they want to spend more time at work. Right. Um, but, but people want to spend some more time with their families. So the first thing I say is, okay, what is it you'd love to do with your families? You know, if you just say spend more time, that's guilt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is it you want to do? And they say, oh, I love, you know, my wife and I going out to dinner and having a great bottle of wine. I said, okay, remember that. And they say, I love taking my kids to a ball game. I said, remember that. So what we do is we have these images of these things that they really love doing with their family. And I say, okay, now let's let's talk about a goal where you're doing more of these things, where you're having fun. And all of a sudden, people start to identify things 
that feel differently to them. It's not a to-do list. It, it, it ends up being things that they really want to go into and try. So you get something that's emotionally uh, exciting for them that, that yes. draws them, and then it sounds like you back them into that, and what would that look like? What would you have to do? Yep, yep. And then the fourth discovery is the actual trying those things and working them. And then the fifth is really the first one is forming these close trusting relationships with coaches or friends or uh, mentors or, or, or spouses or partners um, that help you to go through the whole process. Because certainly, well, you have to drive it. You can't do it alone. Uh-huh. Well, that's that's what's what's so important. So I have used this model before in, in, in my coaching, and it is uh, in-depth, and I think people get very excited when they start talking about, you know, what are some of the things that they can change, and then, like you said, really tagging it to emotional issues. You know, how long uh, before we go to break do you think it takes someone before they can make a change? A meaningful change yeah. takes at least, I don't know, three to six months to start. Other people don't believe it for another six months. You don't believe it yourself probably for 12 months into it. Uh-huh. So most of the time when people are doing evaluation studies, I say never try to look for, uh, you know, kind of measurable results in less than one to two years. Okay. Well, I mean, I re- if, you, if you've spent 25 or 35 or 50 years developing a certain behavioral habit, right. you're not going to change it in two months. Oh, sure, sure. But I love what you, what you just said, Richard, is that other people don't see it because a lot of times, and you said for, what, 6 to 12 months. Right. Because I'm working with someone, and I said, you know, first, you've got to make a change, and that's hard enough to do. Second, if you're in an organization, how does anybody even know you changed? You're right. You're right. So, so that's the second agenda. Yeah. You know, how do you promote yourself or how do you let someone know before yeah. I would have done this, now I'm doing that. And, it, and if you're not really good on your communication skills or you're not much uh, much at sharing things, you know, so you're more of an introvert or something like that, right, right. it's harder for people to see. Exactly. Yeah, so, so it's, it's the double issue that they have. And, yeah. And so I yeah. think for people that I coach, really try to up front say, you know, you got to make a change and it's, it's a disciplined act. You know, your intentional change model, you really have to intentionally do it. It's not something you can do haphazardly. And yep. then you can somehow need to better communicate it. More and more people are starting their day with informative, focused business talk. Top experts. Today's business issues. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Most leaders underestimate their influence and power over others and thus underperform. Dr. Relly Nadler and Leaders Playbook help leaders point the way by providing the strategic place to get to the top in a simple paint-by-the-numbers process. Seasoned and emerging leaders will have answers to these questions. What are the steps to move up and become a star in your organization? How do you develop your people to be the next level leaders in the organization? What are your triggers that are holding you back and how do you manage them? How do you maximize your power and influence so you and your team perform better? What do you do to ensure your communication is received accurately? How do you delegate effectively? How do you develop strong relationships across the organization? Emotional intelligence training, coaching, books, and tools by Dr. Nadler are available at his website, www.truenorthleadership.com or 805-683-1066. 
Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the voice america business channel every friday morning at 10 a.m pacific standard time diversity matters is a forum for lively conversation about diversity and inclusiveness co-hosts and diversity consultants richard friend and judy seidenstein have mastered the art of taking issues seriously without losing a sense of humor perspective and grace Broadcasting every Friday at 6 a.m. Pacific, 9 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel, Diversity Matters with Richard and Judy. Engage others in celebrating people's similarities, differences, and interdependence. Through conversation with a wide range of key thought leaders and practitioners in the field, the show provides cutting-edge ideas, resources, and tools that enable people and organizations to leverage diversity and inclusiveness for high performance. Diversity Matters, a fresh and in-depth look at people at work. Business information you need from the stock market to starting and managing your business. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Leaders Playbook, tools for top performance. If you have a question for Dr. Nadler, feel free to email him at rnadler at truenorthleadership.com. Now, back to Dr. Rell. We're back with Leaders Playbook tools for top performance and we're talking with Dr. Richard Boyatzis and we're getting to our last segment here where he's going to share with us some of the key things uh, if he had to summarize um, tips, strategies, focus you know, to move into being a top performer. Yeah, Riley, as you know, you know, coaching and, and working with people in so many organizations that um, one of the things that people want to do is they somehow feel like, you know, okay, you know, I've been doing fine, I've been doing maybe even better than I've been doing great. But, you know, I, I'd like to keep improving. I'd like to grow. I'd like to do something different. What do I do next? Or they even get to the point where they're saying, you know, the music of life isn't ringing in my ears. You know, I, I want to get my mojo back or whatever way they think about it. And what we've discovered is that um, by going to the specific competencies, the emotional or social intelligence, sometimes it's a little too micro. Uh, although people can really help themselves by changing that way, Sometimes in the early stages, they want to do something that gives them an early sense of, you know, a dose of efficacy. Hmm. And we've been discovering that the essence of great leadership, whether it's leadership of yourself or your family or your department or a country, seems to be this concept of resonance. And that we t- introduced that in the 2002 book, Primal Leadership, and that's what was the focus of the 2005 book. And the new one coming out in February, Becoming a Resonant Leader, is the workbook for how to do it. Hmm. But what we're doing is discovering that Resonant leaders always create an overall positive emotional tone. And you said in your intro comments about how their mood cascades and sets all these ripple effects in effect because of the contagion of emotions. That's exactly right. And if a person develops a sense of how to inspire some sense of hope, not falsely, but looking forward positively to what we can do, it's very uplifting. And then there's the component of caring about each other which really we describe as compassion. The effective leaders don't just understand people, they care about them. And guess what? And people care back. 
They care about the leaders, then they care about the mission. And then the third, which is really what makes the first uh, hope and compassion possible, is uh, what, as you know from psychology, is called mindfulness, which is um, really tuning into yourself and others, you know, being thoughtful and present and open in, in this way. So some of the techniques for getting yourself into a good position to then work on the detailed competencies start by working on hope and compassion and mindfulness. Uh, and those are things you have to always start with yourself, but sometimes people find it easier by committing themselves to helping others feel you know, hopeful, feel good about themselves, okay. tune in, and then kind of back into, okay, well, I can keep practicing that, and then I'll change, too. I mean, guess what? None of us want to feel like we're doing something just for ourselves. It feels too selfish. Right, right. Well, and what I like about that is, is uh, I think this is true in coaching. It's probably true in, in leadership, and I, I remember studying all the literature, you know, in my doctoral program at, at first, I, being a psychologist, was the curative factor is hope. Yeah, you know, in, yeah, in that relationship, and it is right. it does seem like it would transcends to coaches to leaders, and in yeah. in working with leaders, how do they become inspiring? And yeah, I mean, we we have some academic papers out as well as the you know the kind of readable ones <laughs> uh, in the books uh, talking about why leaders should be coaches. Well, I, we contend that the major reason is not to develop other people. The major reason is that when you engage in coaching with compassion you set off these very positive effects in the human body, neurologically and hormonally, that enable you to renew yourself. That's what sustainability is all about. Okay. Well, uh, Dr. Boyatis, this has been uh, very insightful. Uh, way too short. Hopefully we'll have another, <laughs> another, another opportunity and that you and I can connect at another level. Uh, but what I did want to tell the uh, listeners is if they go to uh, the website, www.leadersplaybook.com, you will be able to download what's called the EI Star Profile. And it really is taken from Dr. Boyatz's Primal Leadership, looking at, at what are the key competencies that um, put someone in the, in the top 10%. And the way it works is you would rate these, how important is each of these competencies for your job, and then there's a place where you can rate yourself on how frequently you do it. And I know, uh, Dr. Boratis, in other conversations about frequency of these behaviors is really what kind of puts someone in the top, you know, 10%. So you rate how frequently you do it, and then you can also rate somebody else uh, on your team. And thank you very much. This has been the uh, Leader's Playbook Tool for Top Performance. On our next show, we're going to have Dr. Robert Sutton, uh, who wrote the book, The No Asshole Rule. And today it was really around emotional intelligence and, and some of the things that stars do. And then we're also going to look at the other side of the story. What are some of the derailers? What are some of the literature, if emotions are contagious, what are some of the literature about the bad boss? And what are some of the ways, if you are in that kind of relationship, how to stay away from that? If you are a bad boss, what do you need to do to kind of move away from that? Thank you very much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Leaders Playbook with Dr. Relly Nadler. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Rell, or if you would like to email him directly, visit his website at www.truenorthleadership.com. And be sure to join us next Monday for another episode of Leaders Playbook. We'll see you then.